Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. We are the official podcast of Tennis Canada. You can find us on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network and follow us on Twitter at MatchPointCan and on Instagram, MatchPointCanada. Well, Mike, I'm very excited for this episode where I'll get a chance to speak with six-time Grand Slam champion and former world number one in doubles, Renee Stubbs. And for you, uh, you get a chance to speak to one of our great Canadian players. Yeah, we've uh, got an update that came out from Tennis Canada uh, about some player funding for our athletes here in the country and uh, specifically for lower-ranked players who are desperately in need of some financial assistance through these tough times. So a grant has come through courtesy of National Bank and uh, we're going to be speaking with Leila Annie Fernandez who stops by to discuss what that funding means for her. Yeah, crucial, crucial details. Uh, before we get that, uh, get to that, though, uh, I had a great chance to speak with really one of our top tennis commentators in the game. And she was such a great champion in doubles from Australia in Renee Stubbs and getting her perspective on things. Uh, for me, I, I didn't think it was a big deal that we had a week off because we're coming back here with a, a very strong episode and we got into all things uh, current in tennis right now and we touched on some Bianca Andrescu, uh, who Renee Stubbs also had on her podcast as well. So without further ado, I'll have our listeners uh, take a listen to my interview with Renee Stubbs. Now very happy to be joined by six-time Grand Slam champion, former world number one in doubles, and she's one of the top commentators in our sport today. You've seen her on ESPN Tennis Channel, and for those listeners in Australia as well, you've seen her on Channel 7 Australia. Uh, Renee Stubbs, thanks so much for uh, joining Matchpoint Canada this week. Oh, it's great to uh, great to be on with you. I miss I miss being up in Canada, and it's not going to be this year. So I'm very sad about that. But good yeah. to join you. No, yeah, we appreciate that. Uh, thank you so much. Just, uh, but I guess before we get into all all things tennis and and what's been going on in the sport without actual live tennis, uh, just tell me what what is life like now uh, for you? I, I know you're in New York City, and and what has it been like just uh, adjusting over the past couple months? Yeah, well, uh, obviously I was out in Indian Wells. Um, I was uh, and am coaching Sam Stoza, and I was always at, also going to be out there for ESPN. But uh, life changed really quickly. Uh, you know, once we got the word of Miami being cancelled, and um, we we kind of had an idea that there would be a few more tournaments cancelled after that. I headed back to New York, where I live on a full time basis now, and um, you know, we sort of weren't really prepared. I don't think um, for what was coming very quickly <laughs> um, but being here has been quite surreal just uh, I mean I'm sure most of your listeners have been to New York at some stage in their life and are used to the hustle and bustle and the noise of cars and people walking on the street and you know cars honking their horns well none of that is happening now so it's been uh, it's been quite a surreal sort of to walk around the streets at times everybody in a mask and just no traffic no foot traffic it's uh, it's been quite an eye-opening experience. Yeah, certainly uh, we've we've been experiencing that as well. Just uh, in Toronto, where where we are based with this podcast, very uh, very quick drive into the office. Anytime I come in uh, to record our podcast, it is uh, certainly quite quite surreal. Um, mm. I, I'm curious for you, uh, just just in terms of your career path, because I, I did want to touch on uh, your your time as a player. Uh, when when did you first get involved in, in tennis, playing as a child, and and when did you take it to that further level? Well, being an Australian child, we're usually outside playing a lot of sports. So my parents, um, you know, there was a lot of lot of us kids in the family, so they were so happy to 
get rid of me at a tennis camp when I was about, you know, six years of age. Um, I don't really remember much about that. Just I, It was just part of my sporting regimen, really, as a kid. I played all kinds of sports. And then, I, you know, my most vivid memory is probably when I was about eight years of age. I, I started riding my bike down to uh, early morning practices. I had a great coach um, when I was a kid who was just super enthusiastic and a lot of fun and um, I think he instilled the sort of joy of the sport in me and, and um, my older brother played. He was a year and a half older than me. So you always want to be around your older brother. And I just progressed from there, really, just being one of the top juniors in the country, playing all the junior national tournaments. And then I got recruited to go to the Australian Institute of Sport at just just uh, 15 and a half. And I think once you get to that sort of elite level, um, practicing and really thinking about honing your skills and, you know, school was wrapped around my tennis as opposed to me having to go to school at that point. Um, so, you know, I did, I went on international junior trips then and started to progress. And then when I was 19, I really went on on my own and went to the United States and played some money tournaments and decided that this is what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, I started making a little bit of money then and realized that I could, I could possibly do it. I don't think you really realize like kind of the, the, the enormity of not having a college education or not really having any other plan B when you're 18, 19, 20 years of age traveling the world. You're sort of just, all right, this is what I'm doing. And, and I just kept doing it uh, for 22 years professionally. I, I stopped playing um, in uh, 2011 at the end of the year. Um, so I played a long, long time and um, obviously pretty successful and made a decent living doing it and um, quite successful, obviously, in doubles. Um, I had a few injuries in my singles career, so that sort of cut that short. But um, overall, yeah, pretty pretty um, pleased with how things went. Obviously, you could always look back and want to change a few things here and there. I uh, would have liked to have more success in singles, uh, but my path was my path. Well, it's very interesting that you mentioned as a junior in those teenage years, kind of not really recognizing the enormity of of what you're doing. And I, I sometimes wonder when we watch these young phenoms like a, a Coco Goff or an Amanda Anisimova or, or young players who, who seem to be having such great success at, at such an early age. Do, do you think that's the case that they're they're not really aware of, <laughs> I don't know, everything outside their bubble or or is it just they're they're not really consciously thinking of it? Well, I mean, I, it, it's a, that's a hard one to answer f- for them, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I think Coco's quite aware of it. Um, you know, now it's different. I mean, there's so much money in the, in the game of tennis, and obviously there was money back when I started, but it was nothing like it is now. Um, so you know that if you can get into the Grand Slams, for example, you're making quite a good living for the year. Uh, if you win a round or two, you're making a great living. Um, so, I mean, obviously, we, you know, taxes and all the stuff that grown-ups know that, goes out of their paycheck and expenses and things like that. That It may look good on paper, but there's a lot of money that goes into actually being a tennis player and coaches and having to pay them and bonuses for them. So there's a lot of expenses as a professional tennis player. But I think that, you know, those types of players, like we're talking Coco in particular, I mean, she's just got endorsements, you know, and Mm -hmm. lots of money on the table with that sort of stuff. So I think that they, but I don't think they realize the ramifications of what the rest of your life looks like. Raising children, family, money, expenses, things like that. You don't really take that into consideration when you're that age. You're just sort of like, all right, what am I doing? Let's have some fun and let's work hard. Um, So, that's normal. I mean, their brains haven't formed yet. So at 15 and 16 and 17 years of age, you're just like, whatever, you know, and then 10 years later, you're like, wow, (laughs) that was pretty impressive that I was able to do that in the end. So, yeah. Right. 
Um, well, I, I'd be curious just uh, we, we have to touch on one of our Canadians because uh, you spoke to her on your podcast, the Racket Magazine podcast, a, a few weeks ago. And, uh, of course, she's just 19 years of age, our Grand Slam champion, uh, Bianca Andreescu. And I, I was struck by that conversation uh, that it was almost like you, the veteran who uh, retired, you know, 2011 and had such a great career. It was you coming out of that conversation, learning from Bianca, who is who is just 19 years of age. Uh, what I. I mean, we've had the chance to speak with her a few times, and, and we're always impressed impressed by her. What what impresses you the most about uh, Bianca? Well, I think it's just putting um, her words into action um, and her childhood um, into you know becoming into fruition for her. As far as her mom, you know, instilling these traits of meditation, mindfulness. Um, I was just so blown away by the fact that how much it really helped her going forward and how much it has helped her now since. And obviously now knowing her uh, a lot better and meeting her mom for a couple of times and speaking to her mom, I get, I get it. Right. I, I, I see where it comes from. Um, I just think like I meditate now myself. I wish I'd done that when I played. There's mm-hmm. no question about that. There's no question that there's so many things that I would have done differently when I was younger. And so I think that she's, She's sort of realizing that at 19, whereas I learned it at 40, 40 something, you know what I mean? So I wish I had known that back when I played. And I said that to her, you know, you're inspiring me to get back and wanting to play because I'm like, I wish I'd known all this better information, particularly about the mind. I was always physical. I always worked hard, trained hard. I always had a little bit of an issue with my own like temper on the court and being able to control my emotions and my reactions. So I thought, wow, if I'd had this in my bag, Back 25 years ago, it may have made a big difference in me, certainly in my in my singles career, and it would have even made me a better doubles player. Um, so, I just think you know I've told Sam Stowes, my my player that I'm coaching now, who's obviously a Grand Slam champion herself and had an amazing career, you know, who wants to get more out of her career, even in the last year or two of her career. And I said, you know, listen to what Bianca says. Like this is an added page that you can put into your book as a chapter of. Um, learning from everybody else. And she's a sponge, Sam, like she likes information. So I just think it's fantastic that Bianca talks about it. And I think it's great for kids in any sport or anything in life to learn those sort of mindfulness traits, because I think it's an untapped market in sports. And uh, you you reflected with Bianca on that uh, Auckland 2019 tournament. And we have been talking Mm. about that at the time on on this podcast, like the start of 2019. And even when Bianca made that run to the Auckland final, I I mean, she was on our radar just for the fact that she was Canadian and a great junior, but she had still been dealing with uh, injuries to her back just the previous year. So to see it all come together so quickly at the start of 2019. um, And she talked about like breaking out of that pattern of negativity Activity. And and hmm. then I look sort of across both tours and, and wonder, is it possible that that this could work uh, for, for every player? You, you know, we see even top players in the world. We, we, we've seen Novak Djokovic, Djokovic break rackets, for example. Do, do you think this mindfulness in terms of, uh, I guess, breaking patterns of negativity could work for, for every player? Or does it have to be a, a specific person? Um, that's a great question. I, I couldn't, I don't know how to answer that other than, um, they have to try it for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no question about, it. I mean, Novak's a, no, Novak's an interesting character cause I think he's into all of that. I think he's into mindfulness. He's into yoga. He's into, right. um, all things mindfulness, right? Uh, all the things that Bianca would talk about. Uh, but I, I think that maybe he's learning it now, uh, but Bianca's been doing it since she was a kid. So it becomes, 
it comes so much more naturally and she understands it, I think, even to a deeper level because of her upbringing with her mom in particular. You know, her dad's an engineer, right? He's more pragmatic and very, you know, I, I could see him giving her a game plan. And this is simplicity to that, right? And so she's had sort of the best of both worlds growing up. One's very practical, one's very mindful. So um, I think every player could certainly try it at least and see if it, if it affects them in a, in a positive way. I cannot imagine that it would affect them in a negative way. So there's no question that that will be part of, I, I think, at least coaches' conversations with their players about, have you tried this? Do you think that you could work on it? Because um, I know that I will definitely talk about that with every player that I work with going forward. There's no question about it because I also know how it's affected me and mm-hmm. how it's helped me. So I think that's important to, to experience it yourself as well. Um, and there were a lot of times in my career where I had to choose the, you know, this is the hard path and the easy path on the tennis court, I say, mentally. And the easy path is usually the one that comes naturally, which is your bad trait, whatever that is. Um, and if you've learned, if you're a natural at having the good trait as your choice, then, you know, you're one of the lucky ones and they only come along very, very so often. Most people have to work at finding the good, the good path on a court. And usually that's not choosing a self-destructive um, way of uh, dealing with stress. And, you know, it can be getting angry. It can be breaking racket. It can be just switching off emotionally or mentally, um, not to deal with the pressure. There's so many things that players go through on the court. Um, so if they can figure out a way to get through every, you know, tennis is a really, really hard mental sport. I mean, you have to adjust in 30 seconds and let go of negativity and let go of something that could affect the outcome of a match in a split second. So for me, it's the most difficult sport like that because you have so many ups and downs and so many, you know, roller coaster moments on a, in a tennis match that you've got to be able to stay in the present. And that's really very difficult to do <laughs> under stress. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And uh, I, well, I, I'm quite fascinated by your, your coaching partnership with, with Sam Stoser because, uh, you know, she is one of these veteran players who's now 36 years old. We, we think of the highlights of her career. And uh, mm-hmm. I recall a U.S. Open title from, from 2011. So I, I think a lot mm-hmm. of people uh, look at Sam Stoser and think uh, an excellent player who is obviously on, on the back end of her career. But uh, as you mm-hmm. alluded to earlier, she's uh, she's still striving for more at, the, at this age. What... Uh, how did that partnership come about, and uh, what, is, what is Sam Stoser like uh, as an athlete and a person? Well, I mean, I think most people that follow tennis would sort of know Sam's habits um, and that she's a pretty down-to-earth type of person. It's a, maybe a little bit of an Australian trait, I don't know, but certainly with Sam, it's, you know, what you get is what you see. She's a great kid. She's um, incredibly hardworking, always looking for... Um, something, you know, to, to help her get better. And, you know, as you get older, things actually become a lot more difficult uh, because you you have battle scars, right? You have battle wounds and you sometimes tend to go into the negative a little bit. I mean, we're seeing that a little bit with Serena now, you know, she's getting to those finals. She's had those battle scars now, mm-hmm. having to deal with playing these young upstart players that are incredible tennis players. And they don't have the baggage. They don't have the, the mental scars that Serena has had in these big moments of late, you know? So um, it's, it's, how can you get that edge back? How can you mentally, because it's often just mental, right? It affects how the, you hit the ball. It's, it affects how you approach a, a, a huge match or game or the crowd or, you know, and you have a lot of, when you have a lot of mental scars as far as, you know, maybe not having the results you want over the a year or two, it, it starts to 
really hurt your confidence. So, you know, these players that are great players, I mean, Sam's a great player. They're always looking for what can make them better. And with me, you know, look, we, we played doubles in 09 together. We had quite a successful doubles partnership and she's known me since she came up and, um, you know, she'll be the first to say that, you know, I was a player that she probably looked up to when she was younger. So she, we ha- she has the respect level for me, but also we are very good friends. And But she knows that I tell it as it is. And that's something that she was looking for in the latter part of her career is that somebody that she trusted, someone that she respected, but someone that was always going to give her kind of it straight. And Sam likes that, that approach. She likes someone to be really honest with her. And so, as well as somebody that sort of cares for her well-being as a person. And so I kind of encompass that pretty well for her. Um, You know, and I coached against her. I was coaching Carolina Pliska over there for a while. And (laughs) I had to go out in the court one time when they were playing each other in China and actually coach against Sam. You know, this was prior to me working with her again. So, you know, and one of the things she said in her post-match conversation was that Sam was actually winning the match. And I went out and did a coaching visit with Carolina and she turned the match around really quickly after that. And Sam said in the press conference, I really want to know what Renee said to her because clearly it worked. You know, so I don't know. I mean, Sam just realized, you know, when I wasn't working with Carolina anymore that it was an opportunity to work together and maybe enjoy it. And and I think that's the key with Sam going into the end of part of her career is, you know, we had a conversation about this. Let's enjoy this. Like, let's enjoy the last year or two of your career and mm-hmm. not make this a burden and not make this not fun because – Tennis for a lot of these players can be not fun sometimes. Um, and so I wanted her to have that appreciation of loving the sport again, which I think, to be honest with you, 100% of the two are going to have now um, after this is hopefully over and done with and they can get out back playing tennis again. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And I, I'm also curious because I've, uh, we've seen a few athletes touch touch on this, like who who is going to be a bit stronger when we get back on, on tour and, and who's going to suffer more? Do, do you think it is, uh, say, the older veteran player like a Sam Stozer who is uh, going to be an in actually a better spot when we when we do get back to tennis or is it going to be the the young guns who are kind of more physically ready to go perhaps well i think time will tell (laughs) i don't i'm not going to look in a in in my own global head and be like yes i know the answers because we Mm. don't know the answers what i do know is that and i told this to bianca at the end of the podcast i said if anyone's probably going to recover from this and play really well once they're back, it's Bianca Andreescu because, I mean, look, I mean, look what she did last year with taking that amount of time off with her shoulder injury and then coming back and winning the Rogers Cup and then the U.S. Open after, you know, basically playing one match since Indian Wells. I mean, yeah. so there are some players that mentally can do that. They, they don't really need a ton of matches to feel the ball on their racket and feel really comfortable. Some need a lot of matches. Some need a lot of, like, confidence building to really get to that point where they feel great. Um, so it just it just depends on the player. It, kinetically, some players really need to hit a million balls to feel excellent about their confidence. Mm-hmm. Some are just like, eh, I'm fine. You know what I mean? Um, so I think it, it will be that player that really believes in their ability to, to play under pressure no matter what, even if they haven't had a lot of matches under their belt. So I don't know. I mean, you could you could look at that in so many ways. Yeah. Maybe there's a there's a couple of veteran. I mean, look at Serena. I mean, Serena didn't play for a year and a half after having her baby. Made the finals of Wimbledon. So, so I mean, maybe you look at someone like Serena or Bianca, players that have obviously had long layoffs and come back and played really well um, with the guys. I mean, Roger, he's not getting any younger. Maybe this gives him one great year left on his career because mm-hmm. physically he'll be 
in a better place. You could say that the same about Rafa himself giving himself some real time off with his knees and his body. I don't know. I mean, obviously it hurts someone like Novak who was on a complete tear. Um, but the women's game, I don't know. I mean, this is, you know, like the last two or three years, we've had so many multiple Grand Slam champions that um, maybe someone will come out of this and, 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 and surprise us. I don't know. Yeah, well, uh, we'll wait and see. Uh, a few more questions. And uh, as you mentioned, Novak Djokovic, I, I did want to talk about him briefly because uh, he, he is mm-hmm. the number one player in the world. And some would say yep. right now that if he were to win more, or maybe just currently uh, some view him as, as maybe the greatest of all time. And he, he was unbeaten in this season before we, we put a halt to everything. And uh, mm-hmm. now he's been very active on Instagram with, with live conversations and uh, a, a few with, I guess, individuals that, that people don't really align with uh, some who uh, have, kind of different views on uh, science and medicine. We've, we've seen him discussing changing the structure of water with, with emotions. And, uh, you know, he's, he's been the victim of, of bad press, I think, the past couple of weeks. Do you think he's, uh, is it possible he's, he's kind of surrounded himself with a, a couple of the wrong people? Or uh, it's hard to say where his head is at right now. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. You know, to be really honest with you, I have not seen one of those interviews because I kind of, you know, he's obviously on my Instagram feed, so sometimes it'll say Novak Djokovic live feed, and I'll push on it and see what he, you know, if he's talking to somebody that, mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, I'm not really into, you know, I don't want to watch that one. I, I've, I've got more important things to do with my time kind of <laughs> yeah. thing um, than, than listen to that. And, I mean, I don't say that, like, with a slight to him. I'm just like, I am doing other things. But, um, yeah, I mean, sometimes I just, <laughs> sometimes I just think, you know, with Novak, for example, like he really wants to be so much more loved than he is. I mean, obviously with Rafa and Roger, it's like an impossible task for him. He came years after they were starting to already make their climb into the pro game. Obviously mm-hmm. with Roger was already a mega superstar before Novak really started to chip away at those grand slams. And then Rafa, the same thing. So um, he's always going to be third wheel in this situation. And it's, it's, you know, that really, I think, really bothers him, as, it's some, as it should in some respects, you know. But, you know, his display at the Australian Open, for example, was just, he was giving it to the crowd. And, you know, it's just like, you're not going to make friends by reacting that way. Even when he won, he kind of basically told the crowd to, you know, right. be quiet. Um, and now, you know, going through this whole vaccine thing and talking, it's just like, you're not necessarily... <laughs> You're not necessarily catering to the uh, to, to the other side of the uh, of the non-Novak crowd by by doing this, but you know maybe at some point if he hangs around long enough and Roger and Rafa are gone, you know people will start appreciating his greatness um, because as far as his tennis is concerned, I mean there's absolutely no argument that you can make the argument that he is the greatest. Um, you know if you look at if you look at longevity, if he st- sticks around as long as Roger does. I mean, there's no question he's going to pass that record of Grand Slams, if, certainly if Roger doesn't add to them. Um, but he, he's just, he, he wants to be loved so much, and I think that, that would mean more to him than actually passing the records. I don't know. But, you know, this is a guy that has a winning record against both of these, you know, considered greatest players of all time in Roger and Rafa. So yeah. it's, it's, it's hard not to make the argument when it comes to head-to-head that he's the greatest player. 
Um, you know, and Roger has a losing record against Rafa and Novak. So where do you make the distinction who's the greatest? I just think we should appreciate that we have them at the same time. Um, I think that should be the story more than anything. Um, but as far as, you know, the GOAT, look, you know, until the until they're all, the rackets are put away and they're all drinking beers together uh, socially, it, we don't know the answer to that to that ultimate question but he's certainly not helping himself by by sort of um pushing the envelope I mean, there's some people that say they wish he'd just take the mantle as the bad guy you know what i mean like yeah. andrea pekovic said to me i wish he'd just take the mantle as yeah i'm a bad guy so <laughs> suck it kind of deal with it right you know what i mean like and and play that up like a john mcenroe and right. look how universally loved john mcenroe is now so he could definitely go that route but he tries to be the nice guy but then he flips so I don't know if he's a Gemini, but that's maybe what 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 it is. <laughs> yeah, I, I I sometimes wish he would just play the villain as well. Just uh, mm, you know, mm. everybody's against me, but I'm still winning. You can't stop me. Rather than please, please like me, I almost think it it has the opposite effect uh, for Novak. Yeah. Um, last, uh, but listen, Ben. There's no denying that he has. There's no question at his best. There's nobody better. Yeah, I, I think uh, the the best tennis we've ever seen on a, on a tennis court in history has come from from Novak Djokovic for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So we'll we'll see if he can pick up where he left off when, when we do return. Uh, one one other issue I'm I'm curious about that's obviously gotten a lot of press is uh, and we've talked about it on this podcast is is the idea of an ATP WTA merger. Uh, if something like that is feasible, and and if something like that would would indeed benefit the sport. Um, for you as a player, when, when you were in it, was there a big feeling of separation from the tours during your playing days? And, and could you foresee something where uh, one tour would work unified for, for men and women? Well, there's no question about that. It, in my opinion, it would be better for the tours to be together. Um, I had Andy Roddick on my podcast a couple of weeks ago, and uh, he came up with some really good thought processes behind uh that he believes would be better as well. But he also recognized, and I do believe as well, that, you know, there's a lot of things to be worked out in relation to that. And like, for example, the women signed an enormous deal um, to play the WTA finals in Shenzhen in China. Um, that's a great amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if, if you join tours, what do the guys get out of that sort of thing? So there's a lot of contractual things that need to be worked out. There's a lot of who's going to step down. I mean, who's going to run it? An ATP guide? You know, Steve Simon from the WTA, like uh, ATP or ITF, are they going to step back? There's so many Grand Slam. Count, uh, there's just, unfortunately, in tennis, there's way too many um, too many cooks in the kitchen, you could say. And it has been that way for a long, long time. So I think the power lies with the players. So I think that Roger's stepping up and saying that and Rafa supporting it. Um, you know, I know that the women would would fully support it as well. I mean, tennis is cyclical. When Roger and Rafa are gone, you know, there's a big void there. Um, Novak will obviously be around for a few more years longer, hopefully. Um, but, but, you know, you have superstars and you will have women superstars that will outshine the men. I mean, Coco Goff, for example, at 15, 16 years of age, I mean, she's a superstar already. And hopefully we'll have her around for 15 years. I mean, she could be... I don't know if she's going to be successful as Serena Williams, but, you know, wouldn't it be great to have that around for 15 years? And that's a selling point. So having the men and women together for TV rights, for, you know, just alignment and people have such a hard time with finding tennis on TV, what yeah. stations it on, what network, who's covering it. 
But just to have an overall one picture would be, um, in my opinion, so much better for the sport. And, and, the, and the players would be stronger in their decision-making in this situation. And you wouldn't have a French Open just blanketly going, yeah, we're, do- we're doing it, the Grand Slam at this week. I mean, that just was it's just ridiculous that, that the players had no say in that whatsoever. Um, so just that's an example, a small example of how the Grand Slams are separate to the tour. Um, and the, the players have to sort of go along with it because all the players want to play the Grand Slams. So the players need to have more say in that. And the only way to do that is, in my opinion, be a collective group. Yeah, yeah, you would certainly think that would that would lend itself to uh, the players having much more of a voice and much more of a say in, in what goes on uh, in the inner workings uh, of our sport. So uh, I, I'm hopeful it can happen, but I, I'm sure there are so many logistics to uh, to figure out. Uh, Renee, thank you so much for joining us on Matchpoint Canada uh, this week. We really, really appreciate it. Oh, you're more than welcome. And like I said at the start, it's uh, disappointing not to get up to Canada. It's one of my favorite places to go every year. It was actually my first very, it was the biggest tournament, I, first tournament I won in my career, 1992 in Montreal. So wow. uh, it, it always is a very uh, fond memory for me. And I love the support in Canada from the tennis fans. It's just, it's unreal. Um, every player looks forward to going there every year because they know they get incredible support. Um, because we know you Canadians love your sport, particularly with tennis. So um, it, it's going to be a missed opportunity this year not to get up there. But we'll be back um, and uh, can't wait to get back there. Yes, yes. So we, uh, we will absolutely be having you here in, in 2021. We can't wait for that. Yep. Thanks. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. And there you have it, my conversation with Renee Stubbs. And, uh, as I mentioned uh, off the top, uh, she had a chance to speak with Bianca Andreescu, and obviously we have as well. And, and they went like in a pretty good deep dive into uh, Bianca and her meditation practices, her her mindfulness, and how much that helps her on the court. And, and fascinating to hear uh, Renee say she wishes she was using some of these tactics back when she was a player. Yeah, learning from the uh, young 19-year-old is uh, the veteran uh, tennis player and now commentator Renee Stubbs, which is pretty cool. And I knew it was meant for us to have her, you know, fate for us to have Renee on the program. When she had that interview with uh, with Bianca just so recently, it was like a sign that we should speak with her, although I know that you had had this in the works for, for some time now. And, uh, you know, first and foremost, I'm just uh, impressed with the longevity that Renee had in her own tennis career. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that there were 14 years between her first and last Grand Slam doubles final appearance, um, her last one being in 2009, playing alongside Sam Stozer, who she now currently is coaching, and that was at Wimbledon where they lost in a close two-set match to the Williams sisters. Um, so Renee definitely left her mark on the sport and a, and a big player for Tennis Australia and a great voice, as you mentioned, in the sport right now. And listening to her talk about that interview with Bianca uh, was wonderful just to hear. I mean, it's always nice to hear positive things about one of your own, so to speak. I feel like when other commentators talk about Canadian players, they're almost talking about our family in a sense, you know? <laughs> and and so in that sense, very positive. And just how she mentioned that the, the mental aspect, the mindfulness aspect is sort of the untapped market in sports, as she put it, and something that she's sharing with Sam Stozer, you know, a player who's won a Grand Slam, mm-hmm. who's been around for uh, quite a long time, but there's always something new you can learn. And uh, Bianca is obviously at the forefront of that. 
Yeah, certainly. And uh, in her podcast, they kind of detailed uh, that tournament in Auckland, which got everything started for the 2019 campaign for Bianca and, and how she sort of changed her mindset and broke out of out of any negativity and how much that helped her. And, uh, it, you know, it's something I, I think years ago, and Bianca talked about that on her podcast with Renee, uh, that maybe meditation and stuff like that was viewed as, as very hippie and kind of weird and different. Uh, but I, I think that has very much changed now. And uh, we, we talked about obviously Novak Djokovic and his unusual personality and some of the, the negative aspects that we've seen over the past couple of weeks and what he's been doing on, on Instagram live. But I'm also very interested in, in Renee and, and her coaching partnership with Sam Stoser. Uh, very cool to see her take on an athlete who's now 36 years old, obviously on the tail end of her career, but still looking for answers on the court, uh, trying to get better uh, every step of the way. Yeah, and so maybe working on the mental side of things can help prolong Sam's career a little bit longer. Uh, It's interesting because for me personally, I never really used mindfulness or or mental training in terms of any tennis I did. But as a hockey player and specifically as a goaltender, I definitely spent a lot of time visualizing before I went out onto the ice. And maybe that's something that's specific to that position that really felt like natural and normal to me. Mm -hmm. But uh, I never use it in tennis. I don't know if if you did or not. I'm thinking of using it just in terms of my parenting life now and and even preparing for our podcast because I come straight from like making dinner after having my kids all day long. I could use like a nice 15 minute, you know, listen to them, some calming music, maybe some crashing waves or something to get myself in the right mental framework for this. I'm, I yeah. might try that. No, that's that's a good idea. I'd say my one process of sort of meditation uh, happens like early in the morning with my first cup of coffee because everything is pretty quiet, like 7.30 a.m. That's that's sort of like the half hour, I think, of the day that I totally take to myself. Uh, it's not, oh, you know. I hate you. <laughs> I, I hate you for saying that. Well, you know, we, we... in the morning is when it's like someone hits a <laughs> gong next to my head and off we go. Yeah, well, this is uh, the difference between uh, uh, having kids and not right i suppose i i signed up for this it's okay yeah well there there are pros and cons it's okay it's okay (laughs) i'm sure we're we're relating to all all aspects of our listeners here that we we have plenty of parents who listen and we have plenty of those without children as well between you and me we're covering the market um Hey, I did want to talk about, I know you do too, about Renee's mention of Novak Djokovic because mm. it's inter- interesting. There, There is a parallel there between Bianca and him in terms of the mindfulness aspect because he's also been someone who's definitely spoken of that advantage and, and he's always talked about a balance he's trying to seek. Um, it seems in some ways he's gone a little bit further over the past week, to, to say the least. Yeah, uh, I, I think he's ventured in into a space where he, you know, I think he needs to get out of it, honestly. I, I understand he's seeing a lot of uh, positive, I think, personally in doing these Instagram live chats. And honestly, he had some great ones early on when he got started on this campaign. He had a great long discussion with Andy Murray, and that was all tennis related. He had a great chat with Stan Favrinka. I recall, I, I think he spoke as well with Fabio Fanini, and that, that was just tennis-wise tennis, tennis wise yep. and, and maybe discussing uh, the mental game when you're out on the court. But uh, lately, he's been having... Uh, one character named Chervin. I, I'm trying to remember his last name. As uh, uh, that's not important. It doesn't matter. We, <laughs> yeah, we don't need to give any more advertisement, do we? That's right. No, that's that's a good point. And uh, mm-hmm. they were starting to get into the act of of water and how we can change molecular structure of water with our emotions. Um, and look, I, I'm all for you know finding different holistic approaches. I, I sometimes, for for me personally, I sometimes think. 
our, our Western culture does turn to, to pharmaceuticals too early to, to kind of fix every little problem that we have. But I, I'm not a denier of science. And I, I think he's have a, he's had a couple of influences coming onto his Instagram live who are mm-hmm. sort of saying, stating things that are, you know, completely pseudoscience, completely untrue. And, and that's, yeah, that's not I, good. I, I wonder if in some ways he gets a little bit too far down the rabbit hole and can't get out of it. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if, you know, English, despite the fact that his English is obviously fantastic, but I, I wonder if there's any part where just what he's trying to say doesn't quite come out you know, it is out there in terms of what my beliefs are, obviously, and yours. But I wonder if it gets kind of twisted even further just out of the fact that that English is not his first language. Um, I, I mean, I can, there's nothing I can say to to defend some of those things he, he said recently. Um, and I mean, if he wants to have those beliefs himself, so be it. I just wonder if using that platform is is the wisest thing to do. Uh, I also wonder if he kind of goes a little bit further than he'd like to. It's okay to believe that positive attitude and positive mindset and thinking positively can put you in a, in a better frame of mind. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm all for that as well. I, I feel like I should try, you know, on some level, some of those things a little bit myself, but certainly with the, the talk about water and whatnot, that, that lost me and, and everyone else. And, uh, and yet at the same time, just to sort of balance out the criticism uh he's not the first tennis player or athlete to come along who's a little bit out there with some of their beliefs or with some of their actions i mean you look at other tennis players who have escaped sort of this kind of criticism and and for different things maybe but look at andre agassi um for one um who was once called a zen master by the way so he had his own mindfulness thing going on to some level but Agassi admitted using crystal meth, right? And, yeah. and I don't see anyone condoning that. And I don't see anyone saying, oh, I hope my kids use crystal meth to become number one in the world or to, you know, whatever at some point during their careers. And yet I feel like Agassi has been basically forgiven for that. And it doesn't really come up anymore. And he openly admitted it in his book. So here's Djokovic talking about something that, again, you know, I'm not going to support or, or, or necessarily, um, you know, preach myself. But the critics are certainly jumping out in a way that I feel he's always attracted them to a certain level more than others, even though he's not the tennis player, the only tennis player out there who's doing things that that we can be critical or or, or question. So, uh, you know, McEnroe was a total crybaby throughout his career, and yet people still look at him in an affectionate way. Mm -hmm. Um, Kyrgios can be a total jerk sometimes, but others believe he's going to save tennis. So you got to kind of go with both. And, And for me, I guess just to sum it up is, there aren't really any tennis players that I want to sit back and listen to in terms of their views on life, to be perfectly honest with their, <laughs> right? Like I don't really care. Uh, if Novak is playing tennis, you've got my attention. If he's talking about his rivalries or accomplishments on a tennis court, I'll listen to that too. Taking a veer off to the left about his worldviews, I think I'll just change the channel. And that would probably go with most players too, to be honest with you. Yeah. And look, that's uh, precisely what Renee Stubbs sort of said. She was like, I, I wasn't really particularly interested in tuning into these Instagram, Instagram live chats, uh, just hearing Novak Djokovic and this weird life quest uh, with with an individual some people were referring to as a snake oil salesman. Uh, and uh, as you said, it, there's no point in mentioning his name and uh, giving him uh, any notoriety whatsoever. But uh, as you said, I- I'm more interested in Novak as a tennis player. And uh, Renee Stubbs sort of touched on the fact that he has kind of been on this awkward quest of really, really wanting to be loved. And I think if you look back at certain players through the course of history, uh, their legacy can change after 
after they leave the sport, if they win enough, that it didn't really matter in the moment if they were the most beloved player uh, going. It, you know, Novak Djokovic has 17 Grand Slam titles. If he ends up with, you know, 23-24 and has the record, he's he's going to be remembered as possibly the greatest, whether he's adored enough in the moment or not. Yeah, and that narrative also to me is a little bit stale that, you know, Roger and Rafa have all the fans. Like, I don't believe that. There's plenty of Djokovic fans there are. out there. Yep. And, uh, you know, we interact with them on Twitter. We see them. He, he does have a lot of love and support as well. So I don't fully buy into that. And uh, and ultimately, I just want to judge the guy for what he's doing on the tennis court. Uh, I, I don't believe what he's doing is harmful to himself. I don't think it's harmful necessarily to others, uh, despite the fact I don't agree with, you know, many of these statements and comments he's making and really i think the next time i see him talking with this dude it's just a pass for me and on to the next one yeah yeah no kidding uh you are listening to matchpoint canada reminder you can find us on twitter at matchpoint can and find us on instagram matchpoint canada well we did get news uh in terms of canadian tennis for the rogers cup of late that uh, tennis canada has canceled all tournaments up to august 31st except for uh rogers cup in toronto uh, as of now that is still scheduled for august 7th uh, until the 16th and as you and i both know we've had the conversations with ceo michael downey and uh, tournament director carl carl hale obviously it is a, a total long shot but uh it, it is still in existence at this moment yeah i mean we're three months out which for planning a tournament of that size and, and magnitude and everything that needs to come together that's not really a whole lot of time no but it is clearly enough time that tennis canada has not made a final decision and some people see them canceling all the other tournaments, meaning, well, the writing's on the wall, and it very well may be, and it likely is, especially given what we've heard directly from Michael Downey and Carl Hill. But there is still a glimmer of hope, and things are starting to slowly open up here in Ontario, take baby steps in the direction of allowing people out in in bigger groups or, or more access to places, I should say, than we've had in several weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't see it being uh, sufficient enough for suddenly mass gatherings of people. And as Michael said to us, they can't really, or Carl said to us, they can't really have the Rogers Cup without fans. And there's no way you're going to get this many fans in there at this point in time. So very, very unlikely, but the door is still open just a tiny bit. And uh, in the meantime, there was some positive news with Canadian tennis, and that was uh, Tennis Canada revealing that the National Bank has given 23 of our national tennis players grants. Uh, Some of them are getting $10,000 grants, others $20,000. That's based on ranking. These are players who are outside of the top 100 in singles, so 100 to 750 in the singles rankings, uh, top 100 in the junior rankings, top 50, I believe, in the wheelchair rankings, and for the doubles rankings, off the top of my head, if I recall, between 25 and 100 in, in world doubles. Um, and they will be receiving these grants to help sustain them during this tough time. Obviously not playing and making any money. It's going to be harder for those types of players. And uh, I won't read all 23 of the names, but a lot of them are names that you're going to be familiar with if you're familiar with uh, tennis in our country. And those are names like Francoise Abanda. Um, those are names like Steven Diaz, Sharon Fishman, um, Rebecca Marino, Philip Pelavo, Peter Polanski, Braden Schnur, mm-hmm. uh, wheelchair players like, like Rob Shaw, um, college players like Lane Sleeth, uh, Carol Zhao is in there. And, of course, Layla Annie Fernandez, the talented 17-year-old that we have spoken to numerous times already in her young career, who has had a 2020 that was just absolutely 
on fire, propelling her to almost the top 100 already in the women's rankings. And uh, we were lucky enough again to have Layla Annie join us on the program and, and talk about the, um, the grant from National Bank, uh, which is just a fantastic program. And, and before we throw to the interview, Ben, sorry, before I, I get there, uh, your thoughts on uh, on what these grants mean for our players. I, I think they're uh, of the utmost importance to, to support, especially the, the players that are being supported uh, by this National Make grant are, are those that, that really desperately need the support to continue pushing on in their career. You look at a player like Sharon Fishman, obviously, who we, we've had on this podcast, who who made a return just playing in doubles and, and working that circuit for the past couple of years, coming off an injury for a while. Uh, Jada Bui, who's on the list, she's a, a young teenage player who's, who's up and coming and, and wants a chance to continue continue uh, blossoming her career, which is really just getting started. Uh, others like Carson Brandstein, who's going the college route, uh, they really need these grants to properly pursue their tennis careers. And then others who I think are in a way on a crossroads like a Braden Schnur or a Philip Pellywo, they're, they're in that mid-20s range and uh, their, their rankings are probably not as strong as they would like, but uh, you shouldn't have to feel like you have to give up your tennis career because uh, we've, we've been hit by this sudden unexpected virus that nobody has a, a handle on. That's right. So hopefully this will help sustain these players over the next uh, few months until mm-hmm. things do get going at some point. And uh, to delay no further, here is my interview with Leila Annie Fernandez on that subject and much more. I'm really thrilled to be joined right now by one of Canada's youngest and brightest upcoming tennis players. She's 118th in the WTA rankings now. 12 wins and 5 losses on the year, which is quite impressive. She qualified for her first uh, Grand Slam main draw in Melbourne at the Australian Open without dropping a set along the way, not to mention her big uh, win for Canada at the Fed Cup in February and making the finals of a big tournament uh, for her in Acapulco. Leila Annie Fernandez, thanks for coming back on Matchpoint Canada with us. Hi, Mike. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. No, absolutely. It's always a blast to talk to you, and thank you for taking the time Uh, On one level, I guess we've all got tons of time right now. So on that note, how are you and your family handling the pandemic? How are you doing with the isolation that we've been in for the past eight or so weeks? Um, How how is it going on all those those levels right now? Uh, Well, honestly, it's been been hard. Uh, The rules here, first of all, is a little bit uh, different in the U.S., especially in Florida. At least I'm still able to go out and uh, hit a few balls with my younger sister and uh, with my dad, but it's not like the the full training that I'm used to. But other than that, the family is great. We're we're all happy that we're all together, together and safe and healthy. And uh, right now I'm just trying to focus on finishing school. (laughs) Right, yeah, I was going to ask you actually, so where are you with your education at this point? And I would assume you were probably already taking online courses before this. Yes, um, I did, I've done uh, online courses for three years now, and I'm on my last year of high school. We're trying to finish the school year before the whole tournament starts, season they starts, so before July 13th. So that's really something else. While you're in competition, it must be especially tough to, I mean, now it must be pretty easy. You must be getting straight A's, I'm guessing now, but what's it like, <laughs> what's it like when you're in competition? competition it's, it's hard to be on time with my schoolwork but my teachers understand 
You don't have a, a home school that you ever actually go to for like physical in-person classes, I guess, do you? Um, no, no, I'm not. I'm able to do my tests and quizzes in my computer. I just need to have supervision with me when I'm doing them. Yeah, well then you've got a head start because I know students have struggled a little bit with the change to online schooling as everyone's doing it right now in Canada, in the U.S. And my own three kids are getting all their information online. But uh, yeah, just an area where you've already uh, got that comfort level then. Right, right on. Uh, I want to talk about the momentum that you had to start the year out, uh, which was just phenomenal with that big Fed Cup win over Belinda Bencic, uh, big top 10 win there, making the finals in Acapulco, where you, uh, for anyone who was watching, boy, that second set tiebreak was something else, and then making the quarterfinals in Monterey, which is also a really strong result, beating Sloane Stevens, former Grand Slam champion, along the way. How can you describe the first couple months of 2020 for us? Unreal to think of uh, how close that would have been to not having that moment. Did you yeah. did you ask for that wild card in, in your perfect Spanish? Is that what helped, maybe? <laughs> maybe, but, um, but like I knew it was it could be like a long shot. Um, I'm not Mexican, and I'm I'm Canadian first of all. I'm not Mexican. 
Mexican mm-hmm. or like a, representing a country from South America, which mm-hmm. would be hard. Obviously, every tournament that you play at, they want to have their players in the in qualifications and main draw. But I was very lucky for for them to open their doors and um, and and let me in as an international player with the wild card. Well, despite the fact that the final went uh, went to your opponent, Heather Watson, um, yeah. just the grace and the poise that you showed in that post-championship uh, match speech on court, I think really blew everybody away, myself as well. It was just so heartfelt. And the fact that you spoke, you know, obviously the languages as well, so well, which was endearing, I'm sure, to the fans who were there. Uh, what were you more nervous for, the match or the post-match uh, speaking in front of the crowd? It's the speaking in front of a crowd. <laughs> I, <laughs> since very young, I, I never liked talking in front of a crowd. You know, those oral presentations you have to do in class? Mm-hmm. No, matter, no matter how many times I practice at home, I get in front of a class and my, go, my mind goes blank. Right. So that, I think that's the most stressful part for me. Well, you handled that. Like 100 yeah. finals, 100 matches before doing a presentation in front of a, in front of a crowd. Right. Well, you fooled us then because you handled it so well. And for us watching, uh, whether in the media or, or Canadian tennis fans, that tie break was just nail biting. Can you talk about what that was like for you? Oh, wow. Just remembering that tie break, it gives me goosebumps, first of all. It's, um, it was really stressful. I knew I had opportunities at 5-4 and 6-5 to close out the set, and I didn't take them. And I guess that, that frustration kind of went on the beginning of the tie break. She took her chances. She was up 6-2 pretty quickly. And I guess um, I guess we're both feeling the nerves, and she made a few mistakes. Let me let me back in, and I try to make the most out of it. Went for my winners, went for my shots, and uh, it helped. Uh, but I I just remember in that moment I was really nervous. Well, you won a lot of new fans that day for sure with your gutsy effort, um, and that propelled you up towards the top 100 in the rankings already. Uh, and that has done well for you. It's almost better that you didn't get into the top 100 because from a financial standpoint, and part of the reason we're speaking with you today, is because of the Tennis Canada announcement that National Bank has uh, decided to give some grants to 23 Canadian players, you being one of them, and because you're just outside of the top 100, you qualify. What does that financially at a time like this, when there are no tournaments and we don't know how much longer that's going to last for, what does that mean for you? It means a whole lot to me, like especially at a time like this, and uh, especially playing tennis, you you feel a little bit alone on on the tour. And now with the whole quarantine happening, uh, you feel disconnected from everybody, which is hard for for me and with my personality. I love to be with with my family, with my friends, but just receiving that uh, that grant from uh, National Bank and having the support with ten, for, from Tennis Canada motivates me even more and it really shows how much they believe in my abilities and in my career to, to achieve uh, my goals, which I'm super grateful of and in, in a way, 
since I've lived in in US and receiving that grant, it makes me feel a lot closer now to to home, which is Montreal, uh, Quebec, uh, Canada. So it 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 means a lot, and I'm sure that it means a lot more to other players too from Canada, and it uh, it will help us in the future. Yeah, it was nice to hear some positive news. I mean, things have been so bleak lately because we don't know how much longer it's going to go on. But it was nice to get some positive news that players like yourself are going to benefit from that and if that helps you go on a little bit longer and, and helps you to continue to train and have access to whether it be coaches or physios or whatever the case is yeah. wherever you, you put that money to use then then that's fantastic how, how anxious are you getting to get back out there are, are you good at sort of staying in and, and biding your time and being patient or are you just raring to get back out there and compete again no, I, I'm not patient. I'm normally patient with other stuff, but for competition, I'm not. I just, every time I think about it, I try to watch matches online. It doesn't matter which match, but I'm trying to watch matches online just to have that feeling of competition and that thrill and um, adrenaline from playing a tennis match. Well, we're looking forward to seeing you back out there on court. Ben and I like to refer to you as like Canada's next secret weapon. It's like, you know, Bianca had her big coming out a year ago, and, and I'm not putting that kind of pressure on you, but you were that sort of unknown quality or quantity that we were very excited about, and, and the way this season started, I guess there's nothing secret about it anymore. Have you found um, any changes just as you approach that top 100 in terms of um, player reaction or more media requests or sponsorship requests? Um, like there, there's obviously a little bit more media requests, but but with the help that I'm getting from uh, my agents and and my dad, it's been going on smoothly and, and really great up to now. I'm not feeling overwhelmed and I'm not feeling pressured to do more and please everybody else, but... I'm I'm happy and I'm quite happy with with what's happening right now and I'm just excited to to maybe get back on tour and try to try to crack the top 100 and maybe achieve more of my goals in the future. Absolutely. Well, hey, look, don't forget about your favorite Canadian tennis podcast when you make it big, okay? <laughs> no, never. I won't. <laughs> Um, hey, I wanted to go back a little bit, and it's I guess not going back all that far for you, considering you're only 17, but. What made you first pick up a tennis racket, or what made your parents first put a tennis racket in your hands and, and try that sport? I mean, maybe you tried others, I don't know, maybe you can tell us, but what was it about tennis that seemed like a great fit for you when you were just a, a little kid? Oh, wow. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very funny story, that tennis was not in our family uh, gene, okay. let's say. My, as, you, as you all know, my dad plays soccer. And he coached soccer teams, too, in, in Montreal. So I was always around him in a soccer pitch, and I've always wanted to be like him, be be the girl, be his daughter to, that plays in a team, in a soccer team, and scores all these beautiful goals. But uh, he quickly denied that, uh, that sport for me. But with my persistence and, let's say, my... My big eyes trying to convince him, I think he, he made he made up a deal for me. Okay. He, he said that if I'm able to juggle the ball ten times without dropping it or making any mistakes, he promises to buy me any soccer shoes, put me in any soccer team that I want, and he will so support me all the way. Okay. So I was, I was quite happy and excited with that deal. 
so every day I would practice and practice. One week later, I got it. And when I look at my dad's face, I can't even remember it now. <laughs> you just see, like, the, the, like, disappointment, but also how much, how proud he was that I was able to do it within a week. That he, he was quite surprised. Right. But he fulfilled, he fulfilled his promise, and he put me in any soccer team. He bought me my, my shoes and my cleats, uh, my, my shin pads. And I, I started playing tennis, uh, I mean soccer. <laughs> started playing soccer, and it, it went well for, for a few months. Uh, he also put me in different sports, like uh, baseball, volleyball, some track and field. I went into swimming, too. Wasn't that good at it, but I still swam. Mm-hmm. And um, one day, on his way back to, to, from work, he stopped at a, at a sports store, or, yeah, at a sports store. I think it was a Canadian Tire, if I'm, not, if I'm not mistaken. And he asked the clerk if there was any sport that didn't have uh, a ball that's bigger than a soccer ball. And uh, the clerk uh, gave, uh, brought him to a um, racket section. There's three different rackets, uh, tennis racket badminton racket and a ping pong and when he saw the tennis racket I remember my very first tennis racket um it was pink with beautiful flowers on it nice nice look yeah it was a it was a beautiful racket I I forgot the brand but it was a beautiful racket and he he like imagined he told me he imagined my sister and I playing tennis uh, on a Sunday morning for fun, recreational, as a family, and then afterwards we'll go for ice cream at a Dairy Queen where it was close to our house. Which, it was a beautiful dream. <laughs> but when he bought it, he gave it to us, we started hitting, and I I don't know, I think I loved the, the feeling of hitting the ball uh, cleanly and beautifully that, that made me fall, fall in love in, with the sport. And then to get into a competition, that was another funny story. <laughs> I'm just I'm just so impressed so far with, with how random it was that you ended up with tennis just from yeah. some clerk at Canadian Tire pointing your father in the right direction. <laughs> exactly. It wasn't it wasn't intentional. He just wanted me to get out of the sport of soccer. So that's how he introduced me to so many different sports. Right. And because I Guess I got the con- I love competition too so much. I started playing tennis a little bit more, played more tournaments, and the day that I decided that I want to pursue it um, professionally, um, my dad was was against it, hundred percent against it, mm-hmm. because he knew the the sacrifice that was needed to make to be made to 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 achieve the goals that I want. Right. And he didn't want that for the kids to sacrifice their their friends, their school, a, a normal teenager teenage life. And now look what you've done. Yeah, and now now here I am in in Florida, hundred and eighteen in in the world. But yeah, but it's so hard. It's so great. I feel like it's been a it's been a wonderful journey. Well, and every time I talk to you, I'm just always impressed by how much you enjoy what you're doing. So it clearly is uh, a decision that's well suited to you and. And you, in return, have embraced the sport so well that 
imagine if you'd picked up that ping pong paddle or your father picked up the ping pong ball instead, right? Yeah, no, there's, there's so many things that, that that's crazy about the story that could put me in a different uh, road, but here we are. I'm, I'm sensing a future partnership with Canadian Tire when things really work out for you. Hopefully, hopefully we'll see. <laughs> Okay, now I warned you earlier that we were going to end with a, a bit of a rapid-fire uh, questions for you here. Yes. I'm going to start out with. Wait, I'm going to start out with some easy ones, and uh, if anything is too challenging, you just tell me pass. But uh, hopefully, you only do that on on one at most. I got eight questions here, and since you were talking about ice cream, and I think you said Dairy Queen, I'll start with that. So here we go. Favorite ice cream flavor. Okay. I love the chocolate swirl. Uh, favorite TV show that you're watching at the moment? Westworld. Okay. Uh, favorite part or something positive about life in isolation right now? Uh, spending time with the family, quality time. Okay. Least favorite part? Being stuck at home. <laughs> favorite surface to play on? Uh, play court. Favorite tournament to go to? Uh, Roger Cup and uh, Roland Garros. Nice answers. I'll allow both of those. One because it's Canada's tournament and the other because you're a junior Grand Slam champ there. Um, <laughs> toughest opponent? My sister. I knew you were going to say that. I should have made an exclusion, but I didn't. So I'll allow that one as well. But next time... I'm going to make you think of someone else. Um, something new that you've tried during the last two months? Um, baking. Oh, good for you. What What did you bake and how did it turn out? Um, I think my first try was baking some chocolate cake mm -hmm. because it was my, we missed my younger sister's birthday in February. I was in Acapulco and she was in uh, Guatemala. Right. So unfortunately we couldn't uh, spend it together. But when we came back and I had some free time, I decided let's make a chocolate cake for her. And then a few days later, it was my coach's birthday, and I baked another chocolate cake and chocolate brownies. Um, then I baked some a banana bread. That turned out great. I was really surprised with myself. So you're starting to make some I'm progress. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure my mom like put the secret ingredient when I wasn't looking, but <laughs> let's say it was all me. Either way, it turned out. That's great. Okay, last question, last question. Now I feel like a chocolate cake. But anyways, um, what's one place in Canada that you've yet to visit that you'd like to see at some point? Um, I'd, say, uh, I'd love to see New Brunswick. Okay. I haven't visited New Brunswick. I've heard so many good things about about that province, and I just want to visit uh, New Brunswick. Well, I'm I'm from Montreal myself, but I have been out east, and it's yeah. absolutely beautiful, and the people are super friendly. So I would highly recommend anywhere out there when you get time. But uh, you're going to be busy awesome. for the next little while. We got to get through this pandemic, and then back onto the tennis tour mm -hmm. for you and Layla Annie. We're so excited to see uh, what happens next, and we're really glad that you're receiving some of that financial support as well during this time. And, uh, hey, thanks for joining us again and, and having a chat. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Mike. Thank you so much. I'm super happy to be here again, and hopefully we'll have many more.
Absolutely. There you go, everybody. Layla Annie Fernandez, Canada's up-and-coming star, and we look forward to seeing her back on a tennis court sometime really soon. There you have it. Canadian tennis player Layla Annie Fernandez, who, of course, has uh, been on her program uh, a number of times. And as we said, uh, she was having one of the best 2020 seasons of, of any WTA player before everything got stopped. Can't wait to see how she picks up uh, after all of this break because she's she's no longer like our secret weapon that we've been quietly bragging about uh, <laughs> since Bianca came uh, onto the scene. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, well, there's one more that we're pretty hyped about too. And uh, I don't think she's going to um, you know catch anybody sur- by surprise anymore as she is almost in the top 100 in the rankings. She's got those big wins over Bencic and Sloan Stevens as I talked to her about. And uh, that clearly uh, is cause for good news and cause for optimism. And uh, looking forward, among all the other Canadian players that we can't wait to see back on the court, Layla Annie is definitely right up there. Yeah, yeah. She was playing just fantastic tennis before everything was halted. Uh, getting to that final uh, in Mexico and Acapulco, that was a, an unbelievable finals battle against Heather Watson. I, I recall that second set tie break where she was like up against it. Uh, I think match point after match point somehow like comes back and, and wins the second set and pushes it a third. That was like unbelievable, especially for a player of, of her age that she's already s- seems so mentally tough on the court and uh, as many people have pointed out just getting stronger physically for her will do wonders on the court and she was already like headed very very quickly towards the top 100 116 I believe 118 right now actually as we stop and I'm sure she'll get in there right as we return yeah the mental side of her game is already so strong so like you said just working on the the physical stuff on the court and in the gym Mm -hmm. and speaking of the mental side of tennis ben if we talk a little bit about what we've been up to for the past two weeks we uh we've had a chance um to test our our mental uh aptitudes and uh, in in a variety of ways actually once against each other and then you also uh were tested recently about your knowledge of atp rankings yes well we we talked about going on with philip Fama, who you can find on Twitter at tweener underscore head for his tennis jeopardy. And uh, look, you guys can watch the video and it's very clear that uh, Mike, you kicked my butt. Uh, there's, there's no, there's no way around that. Uh, you, you were on fire. Uh, I don't know how, how you have this Rolodex of years of when things happened in your head. It was, it was just unbelievable telling us when Novak Djokovic first appeared in Davis cup, uh, from knowing when tennis Canada was formed. That was unbelievable. The tennis Canada one, you know, definitely that year around that time was stuck in my mind. Right. The uh, Djokovic one was a total just, you know, fluke of some some kind. And it was just my day. So it's, <laughs> it's like, you know, sometimes Roger Federer, Nadal can go out there and get beat by someone maybe, you know, you haven't heard of. And it was just that was my moment. I'll take it. And um, you redeemed yourself pretty well when I saw you on the uh, was it the G- at GTL podcast with the Brits for that rankings quiz you did really well on. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, yeah, so that's the the Game to Love podcast. You can find on Twitter at GTL Podcast, and you can find them on YouTube uh, and, and Instagram as well. They do what is quite a challenging rankings quiz because they'll they'll pit up two players against each other. They, they feature it on the men's side, and you have to say which player is, is higher ranked, but they're not choosing guys in the top 100. They'll, they'll pit like the number 315 against the number 272. Uh, so you really have to know the ins and outs of the rankings, basically like 1 to 500. And I, I did a decent amount of research like the evening before, just trying to remember certain names. And of course, there are going to be names you hear while you're doing this quiz that you've never heard of in your life. Uh, mm-hmm. So I was, I was 
was pretty pleased to to get 10 answers right. It did help that their last question was Canadian Stephen Diaz, and I just know the Canadian rankings pretty well. Uh, but yeah, that, you nailed that one. That was great. <laughs> that was a good finish for me, but that was a, a very fun one to do, actually. And you started well. You came out of the gate with the first five in a row correct. I was watching. I'm like, oh, my God, is he going to get everything right here? So uh, <laughs> that one was awesome. And uh, and we've done a couple other fun things during the little – we took one week off, which felt like forever. But yeah. I spoke with Zach Thomas, uh, who is a uh, tennis nut and a doctor from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, he has a YouTube tennis channel, uh, Tennis Pro Doc, and he's on Twitter, at Tennis Pro Doc. And uh, so we chatted for about a half hour picking my brain on all things Canadian tennis, which was fun. And uh, you also did a, a nice uh, Instagram live chat with, uh, was it the, the Slice Tennis? Yes, and you can find them at the Slice Tennis. Uh, they're very active uh, on Instagram, doing Instagram live chats with various college players uh, and, and things like that. So we're trying to expand, I think, our horizons here with Matchpoint Canada. So I, I encourage all of our listeners, if you can, follow us on Instagram because we're doing a lot more over there. Uh, it's just Matchpoint Canada and uh, for now, Thursday evening, and I'll try and promote this through the week, I, I do have a scheduled Instagram live chat with Prakash Amritaj, who is a tennis channel commentator and former tennis player, uh, fitness guru as, as well. So I'm very excited if we, we can go forth, forth with that chat Thursday evening. Uh, that will be a lot of fun. I'm going to buy you a beer once this is all over, if you can get Prakash to flex one of his guns on that Instagram live chat. <laughs> okay, okay. I'll do my best. Yeah, they're quite impressive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But looking forward to that and looking forward to some other fun stuff that we won't reveal quite yet. But we do have some great guests coming up in the coming weeks and uh, feel a little bit recharged after that week off and fun to talk with other people as well and then come back to uh, to each other to do our uh, our great uh, Canadian uh, podcast too that we have. Yep, that is right. And uh, thanks so much to our guests for this week, Renee Stubbs and Canadian tennis player Layla Annie Fernandez. Thank you to for listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time.